Well, here we are for another uh, weekly message that I'm recording uh, to try to help those of you who are distanced from our fellowship for medical reasons. Uh, I hope that these are helpful uh, to you. Um, last week we were in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we were talking about uh, the obligation of children to honor their parents and really what that means. I'm not sure that there is a more important uh, command for a sustainable society than the idea that children honor their parents. Um, I, I just I don't see how a society can, uh, can continue to function generation after generation if each new successive generation doesn't learn the basic principles of how to behave respectfully and honorably towards those who are of the prior generation, the previous generation. Um, certainly if that doesn't take place in the home, it's tough to imagine that it will take place in the larger society. If children uh, come to look at their own parents, who presumably, even the worst of them, are making some sacrifices to care for them and to, to raise them, um, then it's tough to see how they're going to look at, at uh, older people in society at large, whether it's a boss, uh, you know, an employer at work, or, or whether it's a coach, or a teacher, a professor trying to educate them, you know, a, a leader of an organization, or, or even a, a leader in the government. It's tough to see how they're going to, to treat them with any sort of honor and respect. And so you're going to get a perpetual cycle of rebellion and a per perpetual cycle of progressive revolution. And I think that's what we've seen in our country. And, and unfortunately, it, it hasn't been tempered very much by the warnings of, uh, of an older generation. It hasn't been tempered very much by history. It's been a, a progressive march forward, a changing of the guard. So we're looking at these things because uh, the church, if, if they don't establish these principles of honoring a previous generation, it's tough to see how, how we're going to be able to take that message ourselves out into a, a broader culture. Uh, we believe that you know people are changed by the work of Jesus, and so that change should be evident and obvious in our own church fellowship. So here Paul in 1 Timothy chapters 1 through 4 has spent all this time you know, really going through and, and trying to teach the importance of good messaging. Every time I think in, in one of the Pauline letters you see the word doctrine, I think you ought to put an equal sign and on the other side of the equation put messaging because that's, that's what we think of when we think of doctrine, you know, the messaging of the world around us. And Paul has been warning us about the messaging that infiltrates the church. And we should take that warning. For four chapters, he's been warning us about false messaging, wrong messaging, sinful messaging, messaging that deceives people. We should take that warning. Uh, there's messaging today that's trying to infiltrate the church, messaging in society. We need to stick to the messaging that we know is true because it comes from the Bible. It comes from the Word of God. The Holy Spirit encourages us to grow through it. This is where our lifeblood is in the Christian faith, and this is where salvation and regeneration is uh, in the world at large. So he's been warning us and encouraging us to take messaging and doctrine seriously for four chapters. At the end of 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, teaching. Doctrine is teaching, messaging. Care for yourself and the message that you delivered to the people, the teaching that's delivered to the people. Continue in them, for in doing this you'll save both yourself and those who hear you. People aren't ruined by one particular sin. 
That's not what ruins lives. People aren't ruined by one particular event or one particular moment. There can be some pretty calamitous moments in life. And sin can do some pretty destructive things in a short period of time. But there's always repentance and forgiveness and redemption. People are ruined when they embrace wrong messaging so that they no longer accept redemption and forgiveness. They no longer proceed in faith after Jesus Christ. That doesn't happen because of a particular sin. That happens you know, because of, of messaging and what they've bought into in their life. So he's been warning us about that. And then we come to chapter 5. And we get right into the family and the, the way that the church should approach the family, the way Christian people should approach the family. So here we are in uh, verse 3 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, let me just read now through verse 7. Uh, Paul writes, Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents. For this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God, continues in supplications and prayers, night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless. And that's where we'll stop. So we're going to move through these verses one by one. We're not going to take a lot of time. I'm really just interested in explaining them at first. First uh, Timothy chapter 5, verse 3, honor widows who are really widows. Now that brings the question, what, what does that mean? I mean, a widow is someone, a, a woman, uh, whose husband has died, right? So aren't all widows really widows? Not in the context of what he's teaching. When he's talking about widows, he clarifies in verse 4 when he says, But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. And then verse 5, Now she who is really a widow and left alone. Now she who is really a widow and left alone. So this, this uh, really focuses in on a, on a foundational principle that I think has been uh, kind of neglected and shifted off to the side in a lot of Christian thinking, and that's this. Care for the elderly is the responsibility of the family first. Maybe you see that on the board back there behind me. You know, the, these points that I've tried to, 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 to illustrate on the board behind me. Care for the elderly, specifically care for widows, is the responsibility of the family first. It's the responsibility of children. It's the responsibility of grandchildren. It's the responsibility of family, people who belong to that house, people who belong to that family. If any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home. Let them learn how to demonstrate godly character where they live. Let them first learn to do this and to repay their parents. <laughs> now, you know, I, I kind of chuckle at that because I have five children and the amount of, of, uh, of time and money and energy that I've spent investing into five children, it seems illogical to me that they would ever, you know, even be able to repay me, but the principle is that they should want to repay me. Not as if they've incurred some debt that must be, you know, legally obliged, although that's true in one sense. You know, to biblical thinking when it comes to honoring your parents, that's true in one sense. And maybe where the relationship with parents is not very good, maybe that ought to be enough. The fact that there is obligation here. 
You know, even when parents have not behaved honorably, even when parents have not done well, even when relationships have crumbled, there is obligation, if for no other reason, then there is a repayment that should be honored here. That parents take care of children when they can't care for themselves, and so children should take care of parents when they can't care for themselves. But, but this is a demonstration of piety uh, to those who are, who are wanting to behave uh, faithful, and that's why it says in verse 4, For this is good and acceptable before God. Ergo, it is bad and unacceptable to neglect the caring for of your parents. You know, and I guess, uh, I, I guess I should just say, you know, clearly here, care for the elderly is not, to the Christian's thinking, primarily the obligation of the state. Okay? In other words, it is not the government's job to take care of your mom and dad or your grandma and grandpa. It's not the government's job. It's not Social Security's job to take care of your grandma and grandpa or your mom and dad. It's not Medicare, Medicaid's job to take care of grandma and grandpa and mom and dad. It's not that neighbor who lives nearby. It's not their job to take care of grandma and grandpa, mom and dad. It's your job to take care of grandma and grandpa, mom and dad. It's your job, okay? It's not welfare's job. It's your job. It's not, well, there's good people in the community they live. It's not their job. Now, I'm not condemning those things. All those things may be fine. They may be good, right? We're going to talk about welfare here in a minute and what the Bible has to say about it. I'm not condemning the generosity of, of neighbors and benevolent people. I'm not condemning. And if Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security and these programs that working families in the United States have earned and contributed to through their work, if those programs are there and sufficient to take care of mom and dad, then that's great. But ultimately, it's not their responsibility first. It's your responsibility. I think that it's a real shame when children don't even think about this and they get to adulthood and they start their life and they don't even give two thoughts as to how in the world they're going to be able to support mom and dad in their older age. Let me tell you something, you should be thinking about that. I don't care what age you are, you should be mentally preparing yourself for that because it is your job and it is good and acceptable before God that you do this job. And if you don't do this job, it is bad and unacceptable before God. Matter of fact, I'm going to highlight that good and acceptable right in my Bible right now because I'm going to preach this sermon tomorrow morning and I don't want to forget to say that. This is important. If you value your relationship with God, if you value God's honor toward you and His blessing in your life, this is important. You have to do this. Point number one. Point number two. Verse 5 says, Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayer night and day. Now when Paul says, she who is really a widow, and then he says two things. One is someone who's left alone. In other words, there is no family to care for her. And two, she trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Now, what does that mean? Because obviously you can be a widow who is left alone, but also a widow who is not very godly and is not trusting in the Lord. That's the idea of, of supplication, continues in supplications and prayers day by day. A widow who is truly alone is going to have needs that they're going to struggle to meet. Okay? 
a, a widow who is truly alone is going to have needs that they're going to struggle to meet. Where do they go for those needs? Uh, Paul is saying a widow who is truly alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So you may not continue in supplications and prayers night and day. Your needs are being met. <laughs> I, that You should continue in supplications and prayers night and day. But to the person who doesn't have anything, to the person who's hungry, to the person who's in need, to the person who doesn't know how they're going to get their meal tomorrow, that widow who is left alone is going to continue in supplications and prayers toward God if she, in fact, what verse 5 says, trusts in God. If you trust in God for your sustenance, and you're left alone, and you don't have anyone else to care for you, you're going to talk to God. Through prayer and supplication, you're going to ask God to provide for your needs. A widow who is truly alone. Now, verse 5 is telling us, Paul writing to Timothy, Timothy, you pastor of the church in Ephesus. Verse 4, widows who have family at home are not the church's responsibility. Let the family learn to show piety at home. This is good and acceptable to God for the family to take care of widows in their own family. But Timothy, you're the pastor of a church in Ephesus. And obviously the church is not to let widows starve. So which widows is the church supposed to take into account and, and take into uh, uh, their own uh, responsible provision for? In other words, which widows in your congregation, Timothy, are you supposed to take care of as true widows, people who are left alone and need regular provision. Which widows, Timothy, are you going to provide weekly, monthly provision for? Which widows, Timothy, are you going to make sure is in the church's budget, is on the church's uh, list of people who they're going to be providing regular care for? And so he says, there. this is the kind of widow, the widow who is really alone and the widow who really, truly trusts in God. In other words, the church has an obligation where the family is not present to care for godly widows who trust in God. Godly Christian women who, through death, find themselves alone and uncared for. And now they have needs that have to be met. The church has the responsibility. So in order of responsibility, the family is first. And that's on the board up there. And when the family is not present the church steps in. Now, if the family is present and refuses to step in, then we're going to see that whole family is basically counted as unbelievers. They're not allowed to stay in the church if they're not going to step in. But then the church can step in. But it's family first, then the church. That's the order of things. Um, verse 6, But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. This is an important principle because a lot of people look at the church and they see the church as, as purely a charity. You know, a lot of people outside the church, and unfortunately sometimes people inside the church, look at the church and they see the church as purely a charity. In other words, it's no different than a private welfare institution in their minds. Right? We have the, the, the public welfare institution, the government's you know, welfare, and then we have you know, the private welfare institution where people go for extra help. Or if they don't qualify for governmental help, then they go knock on the door of the church. And certainly, as far as one-off examples of people in need, our church helps people pretty routinely who need help with rent for the month or help with, with, with food or help with clothing and, and on and on and on. There's lots of different needs. But when it comes to supporting widows in an ongoing way, the church is not to fund God, godlessness. 
The church is not to fund people, widows, even those who are in need, who do not trust in God. That's not what the church is there for. The church is a family, okay? The church is supposed to support the members of its family. If there are widows in the family who are not being honored by their physiological family, then they must be honored and taken care of financially by their spiritual family. But if there are widows in the community who do not belong to the spiritual family of the church, the church is under no obligation to go out and meet the needs of every widow in the, in the community around them. You know that, now, they may do that if they have the funds and the resources. That Certainly, every church should seek opportunities to demonstrate the love of God where it's possible. But here's the difference. Those are willful, loving, charitable decisions by the family of God towards those who are not in the family of God. They're not obligations. They are acts of love, acts of compassion. But here, to widows who are inside the church, those widows are the obligation of the church. These, these are, are, are honorable debts that must be repaid by the church. In other words, to put it you know, kind of basically here, to put it rather simply, the church has no choice but to provide in a meaningful way for widows who are truly widows and who are, are Christian ladies who trust in God. The church is not under obligation to provide for every single poor need in the, in the community at large around them. They're not under obligation to do that. If there is a widow who needs financial help, the church may help. The church may help. Uh, if there is a widow outside of the church, I should say, an unbeliever who needs financial help, the church may help. The church doesn't have to help. They don't, the church doesn't have to help. And I would argue the church should not help in an ongoing way fuel sinful living. And godlessness. I believe every time the church helps someone financially, that help should come with a call for spiritual health as well, for spiritual repentance as well. Because if you meet a physical need without meeting the underlying spiritual need, at best you provide temporary relief. You provided no eternal relief. You provide, and honestly, frankly, most of the times when someone is coming to the church for material help, you know, at least a lot of the times, and I would say the majority of the time, their lives have been, have been hurt and destroyed by sin. Their lives have been, have been damaged by sin. To provide physical help, uh, material help, that is temporary, without spiritual help, which can be healing and redemptive, is negligent. So, the church must care for widows who are truly widows and trusting God in their congregation. The church must not feel the obligation to care for every person who is a widow and yet does not trust in God and is not interested in repentance and, and following God faithfully. Okay? There, there's, there's an important uh, under, distinction to make there. Uh, verse 7 says, And these things command that they may be blameless. Now verse 7 goes back to verse 3 and covers everything we've read to date. Again, Paul is writing to Timothy, who's a pastor, and he's telling Timothy what he should command his church. So let's, re let's review what we've got so far. Timothy, you command this to the church so that the church is blameless before God. One, you command that widows who are really widows should be honored. Two, you command that Christian people 
who have widows in their family, and this is not just talking about mom and dad. It's not even really just talking about grandma and grandpa. It's talking about everyone in your biological family, everyone who belongs to your household. You know, we're going to deal with households a little bit more next week, um, but, you know, a household, you know, in Jesus's day in, in, the, in the Roman world was multi-generational. It was not just, you know, every, every generation of people had their own home. That's what we live with today. You, you know, you get a certain point in life and, you know, you move out of your parents' home, you start your own home, you raise kids until they're adults, and then they move out and start their own homes. Multi-generational homes, households, it was just understood. There was a, a commitment to honor previous generations. They were the obligation of the entire family. So command one, the church has to honor widows who are really widows. Command number two, the family... Christian people have to do what is good and acceptable to God and take care of Christian widows, or, or not even Christian widows, take care of widows who are in their family. They have to do that. They should not burden the church with the responsibility that is chiefly theirs because it's their family. Number three, when you're evaluating the widows to take care of, it's the widows who trust in God and who are inside the church and who are alone that the church has an obligation to take care of. It's not, well, we'll just throw some money at them, you know, every once in a while. This is this is a more uh, orderly way of taking care of them. This is not just, well, members of the church should, should give a little bit sometimes whenever they feel like it. No, no, no. Widows who are truly alone and are godly widows should be taken care of in some official way by the church. You know, that it's the obligation. And the, the fourth thing that you command, the church should not take care of in any official ongoing capacity you know, widows who are not interested in repentance or, or living honorably before God. And the reason, the justification for that is because you might save their physical life for a while longer, but they are spiritually dead. And so you're not supposed to go around sustaining their physical life so that they can live their life in, it, it says pleasure, but it, it's really wantonness. Okay, so they can live their life, you know, in, in a sinful way. You're not supposed to fuel that, uh, that physical living, while spiritually they're dead. You're supposed to call them to spiritual life. And on the other side of spiritual life, they receive a spiritual family who then takes care of all needs, both spiritually and physically. And Paul says you have to command these rules, these structures in the church so that the church may be blameless. And that's, that's what we're aiming at here. The pastor is supposed to shepherd so that the church can conduct itself in a blameless capacity. Ergo, if there are widows who are alone and who trust in God in the church and they're not being provided for by the church in a meaningful way, the church is not blameless. The church may teach good doctrine. You know, the church may, may do a lot of good things, but it's not blameless. Why? because it's, it's not doing what it should when it comes to honoring widows. It's not taking care of those who are in need in the congregation. If the church includes into their official capacity a bunch of, of, of widows or one widow uh, to fuel their ongoing lifestyle of sin and unrepentant uh, evil, then the church is not blameless because that is not what the ministry of the church or the local church is supposed to do. So these are things that are important, and these are things that the church must know. Now, we have widows in our church. They must be cared for. They absolutely must be cared for. They must be cared for first by family. So if you are a Christian in our church, and there are widows in our church from your family, they are your obligation 
they are your obligation. If they are widows and in your family, you should take care of them. You say, well, you know, that's hard because, you know, I, I don't have a lot of extra money. It's your job to take care of them. Well, that's hard, you know, because I wasn't planning for that. It's your job to take care of them. Well, you know, they have a lot of other Christian people who love them and who help them from month to month. That's great. That's great. But it's your job to take care of them. And it's good and acceptable before God for you to take care of them. Um, if there are no family members to take care of widows in the church, it's our job to take care of them. All of our job. You know, imagine I'm in the church and we're all gathered here and I'm not talking to a video camera. It's our job to take care of them. And we will. We will. <laughs> we will, or I will work myself to the bone trying. We will take care of them. Um, a few points about this. Three points and then we'll close. Uh, number one, just a point about welfare. Uh, sometimes I hear Christian people talking about welfare because Christians tend to be conservative people, and, and I think that there's a logical reason for that. But then they talk about some welfare programs, and, and, and I don't have anything to condemn um, when it comes to welfare, and I want to make that clear. In fact, I want to do the opposite. I want to encourage all Christians to understand that when God established His law in the Old Testament, when He, when he came up with His law for how His people were supposed to uh, act and govern themselves and the Promised Land, how Israel was supposed to behave, um, you know, there were welfare programs in Israel. There were. Welfare is not a bad thing. You may not like the term welfare, but there were welfare problems and programs in Israel because there were welfare problems in Israel. I want to read you a few passages. You know, here we go. Uh, this is uh, the principle of gleaning. So this is a law, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9 and 10. Listen to what God commands. When you reap the harvest of your land, so you've, you've grown a whole field of, of crops out there, and it's time to harvest. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Now listen, that's a command. And what it means is, you know, they didn't have the kind of combine equipment that would drive in straight lines and everywhere. You know, they would have big fields, and you'd be, be, be uh, driving wagons, and, and they were to round off the corners. Matter of fact, that was natural anyway. You know, you would be going almost in kind of a circular, a rounded square pattern around your fields. And that would leave big sections of produce, and most of the land of Israel was agriculture. So, you know, there are, <laughs> this, is, this is a tremendous amount of food that you were leaving unharvested by rounding off the corners of your field. And it was against the law for you to go all the way to the edges. Why? So that the poor, those who were in poverty, and those who were aliens, immigrants, <laughs> foreigners, so they would have something to gather for themselves. You know, and this was plenty of food. This was, this, again, Israel is largely agricultural, uh, you know, was largely agricultural. This was plenty of food to be gathered, to be stored, to be kept. This was the command. Not to mention that, but you weren't supposed to glean, which meant when you were harvesting, you could take one pass through your 
fields. But those of you who've harvested by hands before, even if you just have a little garden in your backyard, you know, you go out and you do your best to pick all the, all the, the, the beans in your backyard yourself the, you know, the, the first time. But, you know, you leave some. There are some that aren't quite ready, you know, that, are, that aren't ready for, you know, there's some that are not as healthy or some that just get left behind. Gleaning was the idea of, of other people, those who were poor, those who were strangers, having the right to go through the entire field after a field had been harvested and to take everything that remained. So you got one pass, okay? And, and you could gather, you know, it was your field. You could gather as much as you wanted in that one pass. But you, you couldn't go back and gather all up extras for another 15 or 20%. That was for the poor and the stranger. And notice the punctuation at the end of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 10. I am the Lord your God. In other words, this is a law. This is a command. We are not interested. I, the Lord your God, am not interested in you being as wealthy as you can possibly be. Because if God was interested in them being as wealthy as they could possibly be, He would let them go back and glean and go all the way to the edge of the field. No, 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 no. He is primarily interested in Israel as a nation being spiritually healthy. And the spiritual health of a nation includes compassion and care, even legal obligation to care for those who are poor and those who are immigrants, those who are aliens in the land. So that's gleaning. Here's Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 12 through 15. Now listen to this. When you have finished laying aside all the tithe of your increase in the third year, so every three years, your tithe, and you have given it to the Levite, because the Levites didn't work the land, the stranger, the foreigner, the alien, the immigrant, the fatherless, the orphan, and the widow, so that they may eat within your gates and be filled. In other words, every third year there was a tithe of increase that was given to be stored locally for these four groups of people, the Levite, the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. In other words, the priest whose obligation was to God not to go work a field, that's the Levite. The stranger, the, the immigrant, the alien, the fatherless, the orphan, and the widow. Every third year, the tithe would be stored locally in a storehouse so that there would be plenty of provision for all the needs of those four types of people in a local uh, community of Israelites. And when you've done that, when you've set that aside every third year, Verse 13 of Deuteronomy 26, Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I've removed the holy tithe from my house, and I've given to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandments, God, which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten your commandments. I have not eaten any of it, when in mourning. I've not removed any of it for unclean use. I've not given any of it for the dead. I've not done anything wrong with what you've given me. I've not done anything selfish with what you've given me. I've not done anything pagan with what you've given me. I have done what you commanded. I have used it in a holy way. I have taken the tithe to the storehouse to be given to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Verse 14 of Deuteronomy 26, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. When you take care of the poor that you are obliged to take care of, then you have obeyed the voice of the Lord your God.
I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation. Look down from heaven and bless your people Israel in the land which you have given us just as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. The blessing and honor of God depend upon this. So that's the principle of tithing. There's more. Deuteronomy chapter 15 uh, deals with the cancellation of debts. Verse 1 of Deuteronomy 15 says, At the end of every seven years you shall grant a release of debts. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it, and he shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother, because it's called the Lord's release. So in Israel, every seven years, all the debts were forgiven automatically. And it wasn't if you, if you went in debt, you had seven years to repay it. No, no, no. It was on a seven-year calendar year. So if you went in debt in the third year, um, you were only going to be in debt four years no matter what. For those four years, you were in obligation to make payments on your debt according to the terms of the, of the debt that you took. But on the seventh year, you were free. This would have two real functional purposes in a society. Number one, it would uh, prohibit people from making uh, bad loans to other people. <laughs> it would prohibit people from making bad loans to other people. Because if someone came up to you and they wanted to borrow an incredible amount of money that it was going to take them 20 years to repay, you wouldn't loan an incredible amount of money that was going to take them two decades of their life to repay because you knew that in a matter of at least seven years or no more than seven years, you were going to have to cancel that debt. So in our culture, you know, anybody with a basic income can go and get a 30-year loan on a mortgage and a bank will loan it to them. Anybody who wants to go to college uh, can go to college and frankly go to college for as long as they want for whatever degree that they want, whether it makes good sense or not, and whether or not they change their major a hundred times, and the government will continue to loan them money until they are hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, uh, literally taking them, you know, potentially lifetimes to repay, and they'll just keep loaning money. That wouldn't have happened in Israel. It wouldn't have happened in Israel. Because in the seventh year, the debts were forgiven. So no one would loan money that was going to... And, the, and that, So the first effect is that people would not engage in stupid lending, in exploitive lending. And the second thing, uh, people would not spend lifetimes in debt, which is what we deal with today in our culture. And many of the economic problems in our household, many of the social problems in our nation are due to the fact that people spend lifetimes in debt. You know, so God and His laws to His people uh, made a provision for that and wanted to let it happen. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 15 goes on to say this, If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you will not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his needs whatever he needs. In other words, if there is poor people, you will open your heart to them and lend them according to their needs, not according to their wants, which is how we lend money in the United States. I want this, so I'm going to charge it on a credit card. I want this, so I'm going to take a second mortgage out of my house. I want this, so I'm going to buy a house that I can't afford. I want this, so I'm going to drive a car that I can't afford. I want, I want, I want. That's not the obligation to the Israelites. God's obligation to the Israelites is you shall lend him sufficient for his needs if he's poor. And then listen to this warning from verse 9 of Deuteronomy 15. 
Be careful, beware, lest there be a wicked thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release. Remember, every seven years they had to cancel all their debts. So God is saying, be careful that this thinking, this messaging doesn't enter your mind. The seventh year, the year of release is at hand. And then your eye would be evil against your poor brother and you would give him nothing. Beware, because he would cry out to the Lord against you and it would become sin among you. No, no, no. Verse 10 of that chapter. No, you shall surely give to him, even if the year of release of debts is at hand. And your heart will not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing, the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and all that you put your hand to. So I will lend and I will give with joy. Why? Because for this thing, for doing this, the Lord will bless you in your works. For the poor will never cease from the land, so I command you, saying, You shall open wide your hand to your brother, to your poor and your needy in your land. Deuteronomy chapter 15, the last one. You know, bankruptcy was not a thing in Israel. If a man found himself in a debt that he couldn't repay, he had a logical option. He could go become the indentured servant of whoever he owed the debt to. And there were laws for how he had to be treated as an indentured servant. He was effectively a slave, but only for a period of time. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves six years, in other words, they're a slave because they're sold because of obligation of debt. They're not sold because they are a perpetual slave. That's not what it's saying. They're sold to you because they went bankrupt effectively. They borrowed more money than they could repay. Then they serve you for six years. In the seventh year, you shall let him go free. There was supposed to be no generational slavery in Israel. Someone might have to work off their debt. If they borrowed more money than they could pay, if they found themselves unable to provide for themselves, you know, and, and it didn't matter how much money they borrowed, they could not take care of their needs. Someone could sell themselves into indentured servitude, into slavery, but only for six years. And on the seventh year, they went free. Verse 13, and when you send him away to go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, from your wine press. In other words, you're supposed to give him livestock, fruit, seed, grain. You give the person who has spent six years, supply them liberally so that they do not have to go back into abject poverty. They have worked with you for six years. Presumably you have trained them. They have observed how to manage a house. You supply them liberally and freely from your flock, from your threshing floor, from your wine press so that they can go out and be productive again. From what the Lord your God has blessed you with, you shall give to him. There's a, there's a bit of a, of a, of a, a magnet relationship between there. You want God's blessing in your life? Then from what God has blessed you with, you be a blessing to this person. And you shall remember, verse 15, that you were a slave. Israel was a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this day to do this thing. So welfare in the Old Testament exists. What doesn't exist in the Old Testament is welfare that fuels sinful living. What doesn't exist in the Old Testament is foolish lending. What doesn't exist in the Old Testament is money to fuel people's wants. What exists is money to fuel people's needs. Welfare is not a bad policy. It's just a, a policy that comes with rules and distinctions that unfortunately 
a lot of times in our society uh, get neglected and ignored. Uh, second application point, people who trust in God should find help from God in His church. Uh, we, should do the, we, we should do this well in our church, and we do this well in our church. We take care of those in need in our church, both on the individual level and in an official capacity. We take care of those. We have a benevolence budget. Out of that benevolence budget, we care for those who are truly alone. We care for those who are in need in our church. We do this well. People who trust in God should not be worried about what's going to happen to me if I lose my job. What's going to happen to me if my husband dies? No. You have a family. You have a church family. You have a family that is real, just as real as your biological family. You'll be taken care of. Uh, one of the great privileges I've had in my pastoral ministry is being able to sit down with a man who knew he was getting ready to die and being able to tell them, you don't have to worry about your spouse. Your spouse will be taken care of. Your spouse will be okay. I promise you. Your spouse will be okay. Why? Because I'm personally made of money? Absolutely not. No. Because your spouse will not be left alone. Your, your spouse, when she is a widow, will be provided for. Um, that ought to be the way that it is for all of us. And last application, you know... Uh, I can't say this enough, and I usually conclude every message with it. Jesus died to save sinners. And once sinners are saved, are saved, He gives them new life and He gives them a new family. Uh, it is a, a blessed thing to be forgiven of your sin and to have a relationship with God. It really is. But it is also a, a blessed thing to have a spiritual family on this earth. Uh, one that cares so much about honoring their Heavenly Father that they will honor uh, their Heavenly Father by providing for God's children, for their brothers and sisters. It's a blessed thing. You know, we talk a lot about the spiritual benefits of new life, being able to fight sin, being able to have forgiveness, being able to have the promise of eternal life. These are all things that Jesus gave His life on the cross for, to be able to forgive you of your sin, to be able to give you the Holy Spirit and the power to fight sin in your life to redeem your life, to radically change your life. These are all wonderful benefits that Jesus paid for with His own flesh and blood on the cross. You know, Jesus bought your right to an eternal, to an eternal inheritance in heaven. And we talk about these things all the time. But you know what Jesus also purchased for you? He purchased for you the right to be called the sons of God. He purchased for you a family in the church, a real family in the church. And that should cut us two ways, Christians. First, it should, it should cut us to the core that God would love us enough to provide us with a real family here on the earth to, to take care of us. But it should also cut to the core those of us who neglect the local church, who don't spend much time in the local church, who don't spend time with the people of the local church. Because part of God's redemptive plan for those other people in the local church is that they will have a spiritual family on the earth. And if you're neglecting fellowship and love, material love, spiritual love, if you're neglecting those relationships in the local church, then you're not doing your part to fulfill what God has promised His people on the earth. You know, most people who neglect the local church neglect the local church because they don't feel like they need anything from the local church. They don't need anything more than to show up on Sunday and hear the sermon. 
how incredibly selfish it is to approach the church that way. What do I need from it? How should we approach the church? The same way we should approach everything if we're doing it in love. What do they need from me? You know, it's, it's the old JFK line, right? That's not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. You know, people look at the church, the collection of people whom God has redeemed, whom God has loved, whom God has poured out His own blood to save. If that's what God would do for these people, what should I do? What can I do? You know, God, God has, has sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross to redeem us. And there are a lot of blessings in that redemptive work of Jesus. And one of those blessings is a local church, a real spiritual family. And you need to be a part of that, Christian. Not just for your own self. You need to put, be a part of it for the hundred other people. Okay? So let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I love you and I thank you for the patience of anyone who has watched this video of me uh, from my office. Um, you know, Father, I struggle with, with uh, judgmentalism and, and with, with a very strong sense of an obligation of what the local church means and the importance of it. And I ask that you forgive me wherever I fail internally there. Father, I ask at the same time you put a strong conviction on the heart of your people that they will give and give and give sacrificially of themselves. And I'm not just talking about money. That they will give of their time, of their home, of their, of their energy to loving people with the family love that you have promised your people they will have when they give their life to you and accept the redemption of the blood of Jesus Christ which he offered at the cross. Help your people to embrace this as something that is good and acceptable before you. Uh, Father, help us to see our obligations to our physical family as a way to show piety at home and to do what's good and acceptable there. And give us the strength to be sacrificial and not fearful and hoarding with our resources, but to be generous and kind. I pray for our country. I pray for the policies that our country institutes to take care of poor people. I pray that you'll give leaders wisdom, that you'll give those of us who vote wisdom, that you'll give justices who rule wisdom, and that they'll see the vanity of fueling wants and desires instead of fueling true needs. I pray, Father, that you'll have the church speak words of gospel redemption in situations of sin and that people who are impoverished by the destruction of sin will be helped materially but also spiritually so that they don't remain in poverty forever. Father, now I ask that you'll deal with our sin inside of our hearts, cut to the core of who we are. Don't let us remain selfish or cold-hearted. Transform us into the image of your Son, Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen.